0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. It's great to hear everybody uh, just having fun, getting together, and, and, and just to sharing together it's fun it's fun to hear that so it's good to be with you my name is tony i'm i guess at the moment i am the elder at the church uh, but we hope to we hope to get that worked out as we get others involved but uh, i count it a, a privilege and an honor to serve with you and to serve you so thanks for that jay is not here he's on a trip as they are working toward making the business of Straight and Narrow more part of our church, so he's getting information that way. So um, anyway, I get a chance to share my heart with you today. And last week, Jay began the message on Journey Through the Wall as we're going through the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and uh, I'm going to continue that and uh, hopefully uh, uh, build on what he did. He did a great job, but I, I'll, I'll add some more From my perspective and my my thoughts on it there's a verse in scripture romans 8 28 how many are you of you are familiar with that verse it says and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose have you heard that verse before Have you used it many times we use that verse when we're facing tough situations when things don't make sense we're trying to make sense of them we can even try to use it to, to comfort others, help them gain some perspective when things in life seem out of control. We use it to maintain hope in our lives, that you know we can't make sense of what's happening around us, but, but God is working. But I've found out that I really understand that verse. I have to take it in context. And verse 29 has really helped me understand that. So reading them together, verse 28 and 29, it says, "And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those." who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And in verse 29, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And I look at it as for the word "for" says, let me explain. Paul said, I said this about God, this is what he's doing, let me explain. And he said, for those God foreknew. And as I read it, those he foreknew are those who... Uh, love him and have been called according to his purpose, and he is working that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So that's what his good is—he's is working in our lives. That's the good he's working to conform us to Christ. And I think, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? And to me, it means living out uh, Galatians two twenty. In Galatians two twenty, it says, "I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me." The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be conformed to the image of Christ, to live the crucified life, means replacing my old sinful self with Christ. It means giving him control of my life. It means making him the Lord of my life. And as I speak to you this morning, you'll notice I don't move around as much as Jay and Rodney um, I'm not a mover because uh, I lose my place, and then I, I don't know what I'll say, so uh, just bear with me. But, um, but in my life, I've realized that to conform me to Christ, God uses walls, or walls that come into my life to conform me to Christ. These walls are many times painful experiences, and they can happen many times. Um, another pastor who looked at this topic, he's, he sees it as bends in the road of life. So we're going down the road of life and all of a sudden a bend happens. It takes us to where we didn't expect to go and maybe where we didn't even want to go. But these bends happen. How do we adjust to those bends? Those things that come at us and we don't know many times where they're coming from. These walls come to show us who we're trusting in in our lives. They make us ask the question many times, can I really believe that God is for me and is in control of my life? They show us the idols, We've built in our lives, they reveal our sinfulness. They show us false foundations that we're building our lives on. If we're to be conformed to the image of Christ our Lord, we have to deal with these sinful attitudes and patterns in our lives. And if it is something that we've held on to for a long, long time, it can be very painful to abandon them and trust Christ. It may be even some things that we have been useful in our lives at some level, but if it keep us from becoming conformed to the image of Christ, we need to be willing to let them go. These walls are bends in the roads often come in the form of a crisis, and they're not pleasant. They turn our worlds upside down. It can be a divorce, it could be abuse, it could be job loss, demotion, or even being overlooked for a promotion, death of a family member or a close friend. It could be the diagnosis of a fatal or debilitating illness for myself or someone else. It could be a church experience gone bad. It could be a betrayal by a trusted friend or a colleague, a shattered dream, an accident that changes your life, an inability to get pregnant for those who want to have children, an unfulfilled desire for marriage, or the breakup of a committed relationship, or dryness or loss of joy in our relationship with God. I'm sure there are other experiences that's come into your life that has been very painful, and what do you do with them, and you face them. And any of these experiences we go through can cause us to lose hope or seriously question God. In Proverbs 13:12, we read, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. What are we hoping for in our lives? Is my ultimate longing to be like Christ. When we hit a wall in our lives, we decide whether we'll get stuck at that wall or whether we'll go through the wall. We're tempted many times to hide behind the faith that we understand and to flee from the pain and rather than trust God to transform us through it. We try to keep it together before others and and make ourselves look strong, that we're strong in the faith. When we're really crumbling inside. Or many times we just give up on God altogether and say it's not worth it. Jesus' arrest and his um, sentence was a wall for both Judas and Peter in the scripture. But instead of turning to Jesus, Judas got stuck at the wall. He took matters into his own hand and tried to work it out. And the end of his story is that he took his own life. Peter, on the other hand, he went through the wall by turning to Jesus in repentance. He was restored to Jesus, and he became a leader in the church. We will all decide how we will adjust to the wall. We'll either get stuck at it, or we'll go through it. Some of the first steps in going through the wall in an emotionally healthy faith involves admitting some things to ourselves. It, in my, many, many times it involves admitting, I am bewildered, I don't know what God is doing, I'm hurt, I'm angry, this is a mystery to me, I don't understand. I'm very sad right now, even to the point of saying, oh God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know if you've ever felt that way in some of the things you face, but I know I have. But this, once we admit that and we come to terms with what's happening and we, 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 we share these feelings with, the, with God, Then it involves entrusting ourselves to God, turning to God for strength and grace instead of trying to work things out in our own efforts. It involves remaining faithful when it seems like everything in us and around us is saying run. Run as fast as you can. But if we do remain faithful, if we do entrust ourselves to God and we journey through the wall, there will be several things that will happen on the other side. The first thing we'll find is that we'll find a greater level of brokenness. Psalms fifty one seventeen says My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jesus' first words in the New Testament in Matthew are recorded, in Matthew five, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you, do I live with a broken and contrite heart? Do I see myself, do you see yourself as poor in spirit? Have you been broken? Some with a broken spirit and a broken heart is not proud. They know that their rightness or righteousness comes from God alone. The poor in spirit are not judgmental of others. We realize that we all have the same need of grace, of God's grace. The broken people, and also broken people, are not easily offended because they know their value, their value is in Christ, not in what others say to or about us, or what others do to us. We are secure in Christ. But what is brokenness? What does it look like? One of the ways we can look at brokenness is it is a surrender. A surrender to the willingness and the willingness to function within the sphere where God has called us. Surrender is the willingness to fulfill God's purpose in life and God's design in relationships around us, in our marriage, our family, and our church. It's a willingness to submit to the authorities God has placed over us. When I am broken, there is no longer any resistance or rebellion to the work that God is doing in my life. Brokenness also causes me to see how big my sin is. It causes me to see my sin is big. One author has said, When my shadow is so big I can't see beyond it, I am filled with pride. And when pride has the ascendancy, in my life, the sins of others bothered me more than my own sin. When other people's sins irritate me more than my own, I become the judge rather than a servant. And instead of pouring contempt on my pride, I pour contempt on other people. And the author went on to say, in reality, the only difference between proud people and humble people is that humble people are willing to admit when they are proud. Brokenness means not I but Christ. That hard, unyielding self which justifies itself, wants its own ways, seeks its own glory, stands up for its own rights, at last bows its head to God's will. The big I admits it is wrong, surrenders its rights, and discards its own glory so that the Lord Jesus Christ might be all in all. The Bible says, and Jesus was teaching... He talked about the cornerstone. It says the, the, the stone which the builders rejected, Jesus, became the head of the corner. And our Lord went on to say, Whoever shall fall upon this stone, fall upon him, shall be broken. But on whosoever it shall fall, he will, will grind him to powder. The choice is ours, fall upon the chief cornerstone, Jesus, and be broken, or have the cornerstone fall upon us. It is only through brokenness that our lives become useful in kingdom purposes. The reason brokenness is beautiful is is because of how God can use it in our lives. It is something that can draw us near to Him. Brokenness can make room for a contrite heart and repentance to bring us back into fellowship with Him when we have miserably failed. But it is not lovely in and of itself, actually, it's quite messy to be broken, to get to that point. But it's not the end of the journey either. And it's not a cute hashtag we could put on the picture of a dirty house or a word to use when you want to feel authentic. It is messy and sad. But the beauty in spiritual brokenness it is, is found in where it brings us. True brokenness is a tool by which God brings us his wandering sheep back into his loving arms. So the first thing... That going through the wall can result in is a greater level of brokenness. The second thing is that we have a greater appreciation for holy unknowing or mystery. There are just some things in life that we'll never understand, because we're not God. Yes, we are creating his image, but we are not God. In Isaiah fifty five, eight through nine, the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Some years ago, I read a book. It was titled, When God Doesn't Make Sense, by Dr. James Dobson. Actually, the full title of the book was Holding On to Your Faith, When God Doesn't Make Sense. I don't know about you, but have you ever said to God, I'm having a hard time staying with you, God, right now, because what I'm going through makes no sense at all? I know I have. It made no sense to me when my home church pastor resigned the church admitting his addiction to pornography and later told me he just saw the work of a pastor is like any other job. It made no sense to me when one of my closest friends in Kenya was killed in an auto accident, leaving his young wife an unborn child. It made no sense to me when I was refused re-entry into North Africa, leaving Connie and my sons there without me. It made no sense to me when a fire broke out during my son Joseph's kindergarten class's Christmas play. Several students were burned, including Joseph, and one child died. It made no sense to me. It made no sense to me when I was diagnosed with melanoma and had to take eight months of treatment. It made no sense. And it makes no sense right now when I think that my beautiful niece is struggling with adolescence, adolescent epilepsy. These things don't make sense. In his book, Dr. Dobson tells about many stories where the acts of God make no sense in our lives. One story he tells about is a pastor whose teenage daughter's leg was so diseased that the doctor ordered a surgery to amputate it. The pastor called the church together, they fasted, they prayed, they believed God for healing, and on the day of the scheduled surgery, they got to the hospital, the pastor met the surgeon and said, you can take my daughter into the Operating room, but I'm sure you're going to find that her leg is beginning to heal, maybe even completely healed, and you'll just bring her back out. He said, I'm convinced that God is working a miracle here. Well, a couple hours later, the doctor came out, and he said it was worse than we thought. We amputated the leg. The pastor said he was devastated. He said the only place he could find comfort in the middle of his devastation was in the morgue at the hospital. He said because he felt something inside of him had died. After spending a good bit of time there, crying out to God, not understanding what he was doing, he gathered himself, went back with his family because he knew his family needed him with them. And his, his daughter was released to the hospital. She healed well. She got a prosthesis, and she began to live her life again. But he said every time he looked at her leg, he was hurt with the pain that God didn't answer my prayer, that I don't understand why God allowed this to happen to my beautiful daughter. And he said some people tried to offer explanations. He said they would come and say, wow, you know, I'm sorry this happened to your daughter, but God has just worked marvelously in our church. People have come to faith, have come back to faith. God did amazing things. And he said, I couldn't accept that as the only answer why God was doing what he did in my daughter's life. He said, he challenged him. He said, so if we need another move of God in our our church, does he take another limb from my daughter? Does he take another leg? What does he do? Is that the way God works? He said, no, God is greater than that. He said, I can't understand it but I trust God in what he's doing. And as the overall theme of the book, as I read it, was we can never fully understand all this God is doing. Our finite minds cannot comprehend an infinite God. It's just not possible. And then even when we do grasp a little bit of what God is doing, our limited vocabularies cannot fully explain to others. We cannot do it. We have to realize that's our limitation. That's why when Paul Tried to explain the mercies of God and how God was, had planned for Israel and the mercy in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. He finally reached a point at the end of chapter 11 just stopping and exclaiming, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who, who has become his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's all Paul could say. He said, I've reached the point I just have to worship because God is so great. To be honest, let's be honest. There are many times, lots of times, God doesn't make sense to us. Most of the time, if I'm honest, I have no idea what God is doing. I may think I do, but I really don't. There's a story told of a Chinese farmer who had an old horse that he used to till his fields. And one day the horse escaped. All the people around him ran over his neighbors, came over and sympathize. He said, we're so sorry that this bad thing has happened to you. And the farmer said, whether it's bad, whether it's good, I don't know. All I know is my horse ran away. A week later, the horse came back and he brought a whole herd of horses with him, wild horses. Again, the neighbors ran and said, oh, look how this good thing has happened to you. He brought all these horses to you. And the farmer again said, were this good or bad? I don't know. All I know is that the horse came back with more horses. I don't know what's happening. Then when the farmer's son tried to tame one of the horses and break it, he fell off the horse and broke his leg. Everybody came again, oh, we're so sorry. This bad thing has happened. And the farmer said, were this bad or were this good? I don't know. All I know is my son has broken his leg. Some weeks later, the, army, the Chinese army marched into the village and they conscripted every able-bodied youth they found there to go to war. When they saw the farmer's son with a broken leg, they let him off. Was that good? Was that bad? Who knows? All we know is what happened. Many things, every time, sometimes something seems on the surface to be bad, could be good in disguise. Everything that seems to be good may turn out to be bad. We know that. Many things we call good now turn out not to be good. Many things we deem as bad turn out to be for our good. There's a town in Alabama called Enterprise, Alabama, that has a monument to honor an insect, the boll weevil. Why would a town erect a monument to honor an insect? Well, in the early 1900s, cotton was king in this town, in this county in Alabama. Uh, Then in 1915, the boll weevil arrived and destroyed most of the cotton in that area of the country. So facing economic uncertainties and, and ruin and almost bankrupt, the farmers had to diversify They said, what else can we plant? So they started planting peanuts in order to overcome some of their their loss. Well, two years later, that county was the largest producer of peanuts in the whole United States, and they had made enough to pay off their debts and even realize a gain. So, and then within a few years, the price of cotton fell across the country, and they were still ahead of the game. And so, in appreciation, they built this monument to this Weevil. they call it the herald of prosperity and it's interesting it is the only monument in the world to an agricultural pest but for them this saved their lives it was a terrible thing at the time but it turned out for their good Pete Cazero, who wrote the book in the, the emotionally healthy spirituality he he says the more I know about God the less I know about him and one of the great fruits of journeying through the walls that come into our life is a childlike, deepened love for mystery. We can rest more easily and live more freely on the other side of the wall, knowing that God is in control and worthy of our trust, and knowing that we don't have to know everything we can't. So, we have a deeper level of brokenness. We have a greater appreciation for holy unknowing, And the third thing that we learn going through the wall is that we have a deeper ability to wait for God. If you're going to make it through the walls in your life, you have to learn to wait. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. 37, 7 in Psalms it says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways and when they carry out their wicked schemes. And then in Isaiah 40, 30 to 31, it says, Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord or those who wait upon the Lord shall, will renew their strength. But it, if, if we're talking to each other, we hate to wait, right? I mean, you think about it. Kids can't wait to get into school. Once you're in school, you can't wait to graduate. Once you graduate, you can't get, wait to get a job. Once you get a job, you can't wait to retire. We, we just we have a hard time waiting. We can't wait to get married, to have children, to have them grow up, to see them get married, to become grandparents. We don't like to wait on anything. We go for the shorter lines at the checkout because we don't like to wait. We go through the drive through because we think it'll be a shorter wait. Some of the most miserable people I've ever seen in my life are waiting in the tax collector's office, the DMV, waiting for their number to be called. We hate to wait. We hate to get stuck in traffic. Anybody relate to that? You know, you get a traffic jam. I, you know, I'm always looking for ways to get off the road. How can I get off the end of this wait? There's a research project that was done that, fo- that found that unexpected high traffic resulting in long wait times led to an increase in domestic violence. We hate to wait. But God says, wait at the wall. Wait upon me. Our question then is, how long must we wait? The answer really is, only God knows. Only God knows. Can we trust him? In the Bible, Abraham waited 25 years for the birth of Isaac. The public and private humiliation he suffered transformed him into the father of faith for all history. Joseph lived 13 years as a slave and as a prisoner in Egypt before God fulfilled his dream of making him a leader. These years transformed him into a a man who understood God's sovereignty. Moses spent 40 years waiting on God, learning to wait on God in the desert, watching sheep. God transformed him into the meekest man on earth. David waited 10 to 13 years, running for his life while he waited to become king of Israel. In the wilderness, God transformed him into a man after his own heart. After years of infertility and unanswered prayers and mocking from her husband's second wife, God heard Hannah's prayer. Her years of pain and grief transformed transformed her into the godly mother of Samuel who transformed the nation of Israel. Even Jesus learned to wait in obscurity and silence as a lowly carpenter's son and in the wilderness as he faced the temptations of the devil before he was free to act in his father's time. And out of this waiting, Jesus emerged from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. We can trust God to do the same in us if we will learn to wait on him. So we've experienced a greater level of brokenness. We have a greater appreciation for mystery or the holy unknowing. We have a deeper ability to wait on God. And finally, we have a greater detachment. In Paul, in Philippians 3, 4 through 8, he says, If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. Paul lived a detached life. He considered his national identity, his cultural heritage, his social status, his reputation, his achievements, even his character as worth nothing compared to knowing Christ. He lost it all for Christ. We become attached to many things in our lives. Behaviors, habits, things, even people in unhealthy ways. We love our homes, our cars, our families, our pets, that's for Connie, she loves our pets, um, our comforts, and our good health. We attach to these things. Not bad in ourselves, but our attachments become to these. and We rarely realize how attached we are to something until God removes it. When I was refused reentry back into North Africa, Connie had to pack up our whole house. She sold everything and decided what we would keep and what we would not keep. And she did an amazing job uh, without me because I, I was not allowed to return to help her. But she left a pair of shoes that I really liked. I mean, a North African friend had given me the shoes and I wanted to keep them. But even now, eight years later, I still sometimes think about those shoes. I became attached to those shoes. We put our claws into something and we don't want to let it go. We must have whatever it is we feel like we're attached to. The struggle begins. I say, I must have this. God says, you don't need that. You need me. Journeying through the wall, according to Pete Scazzaro, cuts us off, off our attachments to who we think we ought to be and who we falsely think we are. Richard Rohr says there are five essential truths to which men must awaken if we are to grow up into our God-given masculinity and spirituality. His conclusions contain powerful truths for all who journey through the wall. He said these five truths are life is hard, you are not that important, your life is not about you, you are not in control, and you are going to die. Those are not very pleasant truths, but they are truths and they keep us from becoming attached to things. If I if I know that I'm not that important, my life is not about me, I'm not in control, I'm going to die. Why should I become so attached to things around me? Some, and I ask myself a question. Is Psalm 23:1 true of me, true of us where the, David wrote, "The Lord is my shepherd; I lack nothing." I have everything I need in my shepherd. Can we say with the Psalmist in chapter 73 whom, I whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Can we say that? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. Can we be released from our, det- our attachments, become detached? Over the years, I've went through many walls, I feel. And as I've read this and studied this, I can see more of them more clearly. One of the first walls I went through was I had just arrived in in Africa. Well, actually, it started before that. As we were preparing to to go overseas in in missions, uh, we were going through a a training course to prepare us to live cross-culturally. And uh, there were uh, seven other young men that were going with me, or two different places in the world, and they, for two and a half months, we lived in South Central Los Angeles to get used to living cross-cultures. So as I looked at the other men, I thought, you know, I can live with all these men except that man. I could never live with him. Well, God, in His sovereignty, uh, they told me, You're going to live with that man. And so I remember thinking, Okay, God, I can do this for two and a half months, but, you know, uh, this will be it. Well, halfway through our training time, they t- said, You've been assigned to different places in the world. And they told me, th- me and this man who I had a trouble living with, that uh, we were assigned to the same place in Africa for two and a half years. And I remember thinking, this, this is not possible. I said, no, you, you, can't, be, you can't be serious. I mean, so I, I reasoned with the Lord. I said, okay, there's probably a large team of people and we can live in different places and maybe just come into contact from time to time. So I asked, I said, how big is the team in this place in Africa? And they said, oh, you are the team. And I thought, no, that, that, that ain't gonna work. But wanting to be faithful, and wanting to trust God, I I went through with it, and we were, this man and I were, I think, the, as I look back on it, we were so different, and God was working in my life. Uh, we, we approached the Christian life differently. My, my, I grew up, and the, my approach to the Christian life was, we need to be holy for the Lord, which led me to legalism, but still I felt like that was the most important thing. My friend, he approached it from, I'm free in Christ. I can enjoy whatever is there for me, but because I'm, I'm free in Christ. And that really played out one time when, Um, I grew up, and in my holy, legalistic mind, uh, alcohol had no part of of your life. You know, drinking a beer or wine, you just didn't do that. That was was, uh, forbidden. Whereas my friend, that was something you enjoyed. And so I remember once we were together, and he asked me, he said, do you mind if I have a beer? I thought he was joking. I said, yeah, go ahead, no problem. I was shocked when he came back with the beer and started drinking it. I thought, I don't even know if this man knows the Lord. You know, I judged his actions, not his heart. I was so broken. I thought, this can't be true. By that time, we were already in Africa serving. I thought, God, you, you, you messed up here. You, you, you brought somebody here that do not even know you. And then just the way we lived life was so different. I remember we had to get a car to drive, so we, we pulled our money and bought a car. My view of a car was that you Treat it as gently as you can and last as long as you can. His view was a car is a machine, it's made to run at a certain speed, and we, we take it there every time we can. And so, as he drove, I prayed a lot because it wasn't pretty. It was, we just had problems. Another thing we realized we were different: his family had, um, had most of them had had uh, extensive studies, they had a chance to go to university, many of them had postgraduate degrees. And uh, he said, around their dinner table, they would bring up a, a part of the world. They heard a story about a certain ruler in the world, and they'd throw out, what do you think about this what Happened in this part of the world? What do you think about it? How does it affect us? And he looked at me and said, what, what do you guys talk about around your dinner table? It's your family. And I thought, well, I'm the only one in my family that had a chance to go to the university. Neither of my parents finished high school. And I said, well, around our dinner table, we talk about our neighbors. We don't go very far around the world. That's as far as we can go. That's what we know. And so we were so different, and I was having so much of an issue living with him. So for about eight months, I struggled with this as we lived overseas in this small town, trying to make it work. And I really struggled because I was teaching about the love of God, and God was convicting me. How can you say you love me if you don't love your brother? And I was reasoning with God, saying, God, if you knew him, you probably couldn't love him either. It was tough. And I remember the nights that it just all came crashing down on me. I was at my home about eight months into our relationship. And I and I'll say this, another thing that really bugged me is because of education in her family, he was always reading, and he knew a lot. So I'd come with a problem, and I'd say... What do you, you know, can you give me some thoughts on this? Well, he had the answer. He knew so much. He had the answer. And I resented that. I resented that he knew so much. But anyway, in this evening when I was pouring my heart out to the Lord and said, Lord, you've got to do something. You've got to move one of us. You've got to take him or me. We can't live together. This is not possible. I'm ready to quit. I remember that night just sensing the Lord, meeting with me and speaking with me and saying, Tony, do you believe I love you? And I said, Lord, I know you love me. I have no doubts about that. And he said, well, out of my love for you, can you accept this man as my gift for you? And I remember just weeping and saying, Lord, I don't know, but I want to trust you. And I want to trust your love for me. And so I, I said, yes, Lord, I will. And I remember falling asleep that night, troubled. But when I woke in the next morning, it's like things had changed completely. Uh, we had been scheduled to live together for five and a or two and a half years, and we lived together for five years, he became my brother. Very close. Um, and the, I realized that I could enjoy him rather than fight against him. And so, because I was before the internet, so he became like my Google search. If I want to know something, I go to him. And I appreciated that. I enjoyed it. Whereas before, I fought against it. And we became so close that... When I proposed to Connie, I couldn't think of anyone else, I, anyone else I wanted to be my best man. He became my best man. But, we, but God broke me to say, I've got something better for you. That was a wall that I went through. And I thought, I look back on it, I could have got stuck in that wall. I could have pressed to be removed from that situation. We could have went our separate ways. But it would not have changed my life the way God changed me. So I was thankful that God led me through the wall. He, he brought me to a greater level of brokenness. He... Um, he showed me that there's mysteries I won't understand. Why did he put us so different together? He, he showed me that, uh, that I, 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 there were things in my life at that time that I thought, these are non-negotiables. These are things that will never change. Through this relationship with this man, they, I think all of them changed. I often told Connie that uh, we're living with this man prepared me to be a better husband because he, God changed me in so many ways. But I learned that the value of going through the wall And I think for all of us, we'll have to make those decisions when you're faced with walls. And God's purpose for us is to have a loving union with him at the end of the journey. Are we willing to experience a greater level of brokenness, accept and appreciate a holy, unknowing, learn to wait on God, and achieve a greater level of detachment from the world? His desire is to conform us to Christ. That's what it will take to get us there. Will we let him? Will we let him? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for um, your love for us, that you love us and want us to be conformed to Christ, that we, he might be the firstborn among many in our family. And thank you that you take us through walls and things in our lives and you draw us to yourself and you, you, you bring us to a point of brokenness uh, you, you show us that we can wait upon you, you show us that there's things that we'll never understand, but we can accept them as from you, and you show us that this world does not offer what you have to offer us, and so thank you, Father, that you want that for us, and you, you call us to to walk with you in this way, and I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that we are probably all facing some sort of a wall in our lives, and I pray we'll not get stuck there, but we'll press through and we'll see you change us to be more like our Lord. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.